Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Jean Meserve. Hi, I'm Jeff Stein. Welcome to another edition of Spy Talk. And I'm Jean Meserve. Dozens of current and former members of the military have been charged in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. In response, the U.S. military declared a stand down to examine the issue of extremism in the ranks. Republican Congressman Matt Gates says he's hearing from officers that the stand down was counterproductive. They say that your stand down regarding extremism did not help our military, it hurt the military. And I, I wanna share with you that perspective, that it caused service members to otherize one another, it impaired group cohesion. And interesting to me is that I've heard those sentiments most frequently from units that are majority minority. Later in the show, I'll be getting reaction from retired Air Force Brigadier General Francis X. Taylor, who investigated racial tensions during his military career and later spearheaded government efforts to deal with extremism. Meanwhile, we're going to take a look at the intelligence picture in Afghanistan. Douglas London is a retired, decorated, 34-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency's clandestine service. He's been a CIA station chief and served extensively across the Middle East, Africa, South and Central Asia. He has a new book, his first that we know of, coming out in September. It's an enthralling memoir entitled The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. I've been reading it. It has some startling revelations, which we'll get back to when it comes out. But today I wanted to talk with Doug London about the CIA in Afghanistan where the Taliban has made dramatic gains in recent weeks. I caught up to him, where else, in the Middle East. Doug London, welcome to Spy Talk. Thank you, it's good to be here. The situation is rapidly deteriorating in Afghanistan by all accounts. What do you think the CIA is doing now to reposition itself given uh, the uh, recent Taliban grabs of territory and regional capitals? The CIA would no doubt have been repositioning itself for some time, seeing this transition with the withdrawal of the troops and the closure of bases. So I would expect that for quite a bit of time, they've been preparing a a stay-behind approach to maintain collection in Afghanistan without relying on having CIA case officers on the ground. Okay, let's let's explain that a little bit, what a stay-behind agent is. A stay-behind agent serves somewhat like a surrogate. They're a middleman, if you would. They're a local that, Afghan. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be. It could very well be an Afghan, but if you're targeting Al-Qaeda and you're targeting an Arab cell in Al-Qaeda, it could very well be an, an Arab from whatever number of countries might have mm-hmm. um, members in it. Okay. The, the, the point is that a stay, behind, a stay behinds are necessary when the U.S. is withdrawing from uh, territory, like in Vietnam, for example, we had stay behind agents. Um, All right, so they're creating 
uh, stay behind agents to prepare for a complete Taliban takeover of the country. Is that it? Well, you know, you've got to be a little careful when you say complete. Uh, if you even have a scenario like there was pre 9-11, the Taliban didn't exercise control over the entirety of the country. The mm -hmm. Northern Alliance still had a presence in the Panjshir Valley and, and somewhat in Majar Sharif. So if we're looking at a resumption of the civil war, we're probably looking at something more along those lines. Mm -hmm. And that would likely align CIA with various warlords in the country uh, who, uh, one in particular, was critically important when the Green Berets and CIA teams landed after 911. Uh, and began the route of the Taliban. So it's very likely that the CIA is uh, continuing or resuscitating these alliances. It would be along those fashions. Uh, again, a number of these folks have been in the government. Bismillah Khan, who's now the uh, chief of the Afghan military for the ANA, the Afghan National Army, was one of the key uh, counterparts during our initial presence right after 9-11. Mm -hmm. So... Um, uh, all prognostications right now doesn't mean they're right, but the let's call it the conventional wisdom uh, is that uh, Afghan is going to fall into a period of civil war. It's, it's hard to see it going another way. Um, when the Soviets pulled out of Afghanistan after uh, they were defeated militarily, Najibullah, the, 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 the leader, the, the communist leader of Afghanistan, maintained control for two plus years, but he did so with a flow of money that he was able to use to, I'll say, rent as opposed to buy the loyalty of warlords or regional powers or ethnic powers. It was only when there was the coup in the Soviet Union and the money stopped that Najibullah fell. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, uh, if, the, uh, if Kabul is ringed by Taliban forces, uh, do you see an evacuation of the U.S. Embassy uh, as occurred in Saigon in April 1975? What, what's the scenario for that? Well, that's certainly a nightmare scenario. There's clearly a hope that um, that zone within Kabul can persevere uh, with the continued survival of the government. But I think there's hope among some, I don't necessarily share it, that even a seizure of power by the Taliban, and they've made a statement recently, would not require the evacuation of the embassies. I mm. see that as problematic, but certainly that's one of the, the possible scenarios. How do you see it as problematic? I don't see the Taliban as a reliable partner. I haven't seen them as one in the uh, negotiations and the withdrawal process. Uh, they've made statements that they won't tolerate the presence of any foreign troops. The U.S. official community will depend on a, a small but still existing U.S. military presence in Kabul to protect the embassy and to protect uh, the international offices. If the Taliban sees these again as foreign invaders and target them as such, that would then lead, obviously, to a, a total withdrawal of the American presence. Now, we had relationships with the, uh, a relationship, a diplomatic relationship with the Taliban regime in the 1990s. Uh, so you don't foresee uh, continuing that diplomatic relationship uh, if the government falls? Well, I'm trying to remember the last time we had a U.S. embassy in, in Kabul. I don't think it was during the, the Taliban's um, hold on power. We had engagement with the Taliban. We certainly communicated with them. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that we actually recognized them as the official government of Afghanistan. The Saudis did. Pakistan did as well. Mm -hmm. Iran might have as well. I don't mm -hmm. think the United States did, if I have to check my memory. 
Yeah, we had an, uh, there was an Afghan a Taliban delegation uh, that came here uh, and was given red carpet treatment uh, 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 for a program of drug eradication. Right. Uh, uh, they uh, were welcomed by U.S. intelligence, in fact, uh, because we liked what they were doing with drug eradication. Of course, that situation has changed now because the Taliban commanders are making money off heroin now. So that's uh, a big reversal. Um, so again, going back to security in Kabul, uh, do you worry that Americans will be taken, be taken hostage by the Taliban? Clearly, that's one of the concerns. Um, I, the Taliban has made a commitment again, which I, I question, as to protecting accepted members of the official community. But it's hard to see how they're going to behave if they, in fact, seize Kabul and take over power as, as the central government. So I would not expect we would wait to see if we could rely on them or not. And, and recircling back to what you said earlier, we probably would pull out our presence there. What uh, there's been a, a lot of talk lately uh, about getting Afghan interpreters who served us loyally, getting them out. There's uh, been quite a hue and cry that the U.S. is not moving fast enough. How about uh, CIA assets? Is uh, would the CIA be moving quickly now to try to rescue some of its assets who are really in mort mortal danger? Without commenting specifically on, on Afghan assets, the CIA does have a commitment to um, its sources, to its agents over the years, protect them if their life's in jeopardy. Uh, in the past, we've, we've moved many, many families out when a government was going to collapse or when a network was compromised. So I believe the CIA would say true to its commitments if it met the threshold. Mm -hmm. If the agent was, in fact, cooperating clandestinely, and its relationship with the CIA was not exposed, there'd be no reason to pull them out. There's then the liaison partners, the National Director of Security, those are official Afghans with whom we had official relationships, but we don't have the same obligation to them. So mm -hmm. our obligation is to our agents who you know, work with us clandestinely and take those risks with us undercover. And if their security was in jeopardy, we would certainly do something for them. Mm -hmm. to, uh, to enhance their security. So to clarify, we don't have an obligation to say the heads of Afghan intelligence agencies uh, to rescue them and get them out of Kabul. They're no, on their own. No, no official commitment to them. They're mm -hmm. partners, but we don't have such a commitment. Do you think the agency learned a lesson from Vietnam? I don't mean to harp on that, but as you know, uh, agents uh, who are in mortal danger were left behind and, and numerous files were captured by North Vietnam as it swept down through South Vietnam. So do you detect that the agency will make a better exit this time and make sure uh, assets are not turned over, files are not turned over? Well, there's two types of agents. There's agents that the CIA would run on its own, unilaterally, without the knowledge of the Afghan government. If we were running those agents without the knowledge, there'd be no files for the Taliban to capture. There are joint cases that we run with uh, foreign partners like the NDS. And if we were running an agent together, that would be another question. And, and that documentation might be in jeopardy because CIA would not have control of what the Afghan official service was holding, only what we held. Mm -hmm. um I was not in Vietnam when the, when the end came. I was there in 1968, 69, and I was running a spy network that was called Unilateral. 
And for listeners, unilateral means we didn't work with the host government. Uh, in fact, we continued, uh, considered the host government hostile. Uh, if the North Vietnamese had captured my files, they would have identified some 13 to 15 uh, agents for us. Um, so those are the kind of files we don't want to fall into the hands of the Taliban. Yeah, clearly the lesson we needed to learn then is, is rather from Iran when we thought we were shredding documents and, and burning down files. Uh, clearly we didn't do enough good job because the Iranians were able to piece them together. Today's shredders and system is better, but you, you, you mentioned a point which I think is worth touching on for your listeners, the idea of agent networks. Um, that very well could be the future of uh, the USIC's collection, depending on principal agents, stay-behind agents who act like our surrogates and run their own stable, if you would, a number of sources. A network like that is more vulnerable because often if um, they capture one, they can roll up the entire network as opposed to where we have case officers on the ground handling each agent independently, preserving their security, compartmenting it from one another. Mm-hmm. What's the worst case scenario? <laughs> the worst case scenario for the US government, for CIA all aligned together? Both. I'll be the worst case is that the Taliban is everything we fear it's going to be and basically uh, returns to the way it ruled during the 90s uh, in terms of partnering with foreign terrorist groups, uh, human rights, um, pretty much everything we abhor. But our job, the intelligence community, really is to collect on that, to provide decision makers insight to inform their thinking and, and what steps they could take to preserve U.S. security interests. Are you confident that uh, U.S. intelligence and the CIA in particular will be able to get good reporting from inside Afghanistan even after the government falls or when it falls or if it falls? It's not their first rodeo in this kind of scenario. In fact, it was the U.S. and the CIA's relationships prior to 9-11 that allowed a CIA team to be on the ground within 15 days of 9-11. So we're going to collect intelligence. It will be harder it will be harder to validate and test the intelligence when it might be running through these middlemen like stay behinds and principal agent networks. And we will not have the broad insight across the country as we did when we had a physical presence of USIC collectors throughout the country. So that will be a little challenging for the quality, but we'll continue to collect intelligence as we have in such scenarios. So I guess our posture is fingers crossed. <laughs> it's always been part of mine, yes. All right, Doug London, thanks so much for joining us on Spy Talk, and I'm sure it won't be the last time you're with us. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. That was Douglas London, a retired veteran CIA clandestine services officer. Stand by. We'll be coming back in a little while with Gene's interview of Francis X. Taylor, a retired Air Force Brigadier General, on the threat of violent extremism in the military ranks. heard at the top of this episode, during a recent hearing, Congressman Matt Gates went after the military's top brass for ordering a stand down to discuss extremism in the ranks and for embracing critical race theory. 
Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs General Mark Milley fired back. I don't, I don't know what the what the issue of critical race theory is and what the relevance here uh, in with the department. We do not teach critical race theory. We don't we don't embrace uh, critical race theory. And I think I think that's a spurious uh, uh, conversation. I've read Mao Zedong. I've read I've read Karl Marx. I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong with understanding, having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend? Former President Donald Trump said he found those comments from Austin and Milley pathetic and said he would have fired both men. Fox News host Tucker Carlson piled on, saying of Milley, he's not just a pig, he's stupid, adding it's hard to believe that man wears the uniform. I spoke to Francis X. Taylor, a former Air Force Brigadier General and former head of intelligence and analysis at the Department of Homeland Security for his take on what Trump and Carlson said. What is your reaction to those reactions to top defense officials? It's nonsense. And it's nonsense because military is an institution that is committed to equal opportunity and treating people fairly. And it has been our history in this country that we've opened opportunities uh, to people of all races and genders uh, more recently uh, as an opportunity to serve the nation. And during that, the course of this period, this isn't the first time this has happened. Uh, you'll probably recall in the 60s when there was racial strife and tension on bases and riots and that sort of thing, the military went into a, um, a significant training uh, exercise to uh, teach people about um, behaviors that were um, uh, inconsistent with our military values. So I, look, this is very consistent with how the, our military has treated these issues going forward. And I think it's the right thing to do to keep unity and cohesion in our force. There are, of course, many people within the military who supported President Trump. What does it do to the military to have him in particular um, making such derogatory statements about leadership? You know, it's, uh, it's worrisome that he would, uh, as the commander in chief, uh, make those kinds of comments as a former commander in chief. It does have residents at, at some point in the ranks. But, you know, our military has been through quite a bit over the years, and uh, we've survived these challenges, uh, and we will survive the challenge of, you know, President Trump's actions. So there's unity uh, and cohesion in the force. So I'm not worried that that's going to be eroded. As you know, um, the military declared a stand down to reflect on these issues after January 6th. The Military Times said that some troops felt that leadership really wasn't taking it seriously and that in some cases the all-day training course was cut down to 30 minutes. What's your reaction to that? Well, the way in which the military uh, does training across the force is uh, through stand down. So it's not unusual to do that when there's a particular tr uh, issue uh, in front of the military, be it training accidents or extremism or whatever. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me that there are leaders uh, in the military ranks that uh, 
may not uh, be fully supportive of what the leadership of the military is trying to do. And, uh, but I, I would think that they are few and far between and that uh, the troops will respond to uh, the appropriate training that uh, their leaders have directed. I spoke to another former military leader who was critical of the stand down. And he harked back to what happened in the 60s and 70s and said what he thought it had done was and did in, in current times was create a sense of what he called otherism and that it actually undermined the cohesion of the force. I, I find that uh, incredible uh, that that's what would have been the case. You know, the military in the 60s was suffering from racial discrimination that was very rampant and open, uh, and uh, it took that on, uh, the leadership took that on because there was a need to, for people to better understand how their behavior was impacting other people. And I think the same is true today. And uh, I don't think it creates otherism. Uh, you know, there are women and minorities in our force. And many times the majority doesn't understand their perspective uh, about the world and how they've been treated. And these training opportunities allow that dialogue to occur. And I think dialogue is critical to unit cohesion. Some people have characterized the stand down as an attempt to purge conservatives and engage in liberal indoctrination. You know, the, the military by its nature is a very conservative institution. So I, I doubt uh, there's any purging intended or uh, expected out of this. This is about understanding where we are and the issues that divide the force uh, so that we have better understanding of, of how to lead the force. And uh, yeah, I, I get sometimes people say, well, when you, you speak about race, it divides us. Well, race is what it is in this country and it is something that we need to talk about honestly and openly about our nation's history and how people of color uh, and indeed women have been treated in the past. And as we move towards a more perfect union, how we can improve our behavior to enhance uh, the opportunities for all. You've looked at this problem from a number of different perspectives. You've been in the military. You've been a leader in the military. Uh, you also have been in the Department of Homeland Security and held a number of other posts relating to, to counterterrorism. I'd like your assessment on how serious a problem white extremism and white supremacy is in the U.S. military. You know, I, I can't gauge how serious well, it is. Uh, I would not doubt, uh, given the background of some of the people who were arrested uh, after January 6th, that there are people within our ranks that harbor uh, those sentiments. Uh, my belief is that they're very few because those sentiments are really inconsistent with the oath of office that we all take when we join the military to uphold and defend the Constitution. But, you know, we're not thought police. We can't guarantee that everyone is pure of heart and pure of mind. So I don't doubt that those sentiments exist. Uh, the question is whether people act on those sentiments in the course of their military duties, which would be inconsistent with uh, our standards of behavior.
Shouldn't we know how big a problem it is? Has there been a failure to collect information and data that would tell us? Yeah, well, I, I, in, in, the, uh, in the 60s, and I was on active duty, uh, I joined the Air Force in 1970. I was in the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. I went undercover to several bases in 1971 to get a better understanding of issues that were dividing uh, the force. And you can't, uh, you can't get into what's in people's minds. You can only get into how people behave. And I think this is a focus on behavior and how people treat each other in the military and adhere to our uh, leadership and uh, ethical standards. And uh, if you're a white supremacist and you want to believe that, uh, but not act on it in the military, that's kind of the reality that we have to deal with. Isn't it tough, though, to draw that line between what's free speech and protected thought and extremism? No, it's, I think it's pretty simple to draw that line. It's, uh, it's not what you think and what you say, it's what you do. Uh, and certainly the investigative standard of the FBI is not about what you say, it's what you actually do. And the fact is that white supremacists uh, or organizations associated with white supremacists have conducted more lethal attacks in our country than any other group in the last two years. Uh, th those facts come out of the FBI. So it's behavior we're focused on, not on free speech and you know, constitutionally protected uh, rights. You referred to January 6th. If someone believes that President Biden is not the legitimate commander in chief, should they be serving? Doesn't it jeopardize the integrity of the chain of command? You mean if someone uh, holds those views that he's not legitimate, then they shouldn't be in the military? I that mean, could the American potentially people, clear out the military. I don't believe that. You don't? I, I, I do not believe that. I believe that 99 and 44, 100% of our military uh, people and forces are loyal to our Constitution and to their oath of office and will perform um, as they have in countless ways uh, when called upon to do so. But they and, may believe the big lie. Well, they may believe it, but do they act on it? And, you know, we, we're a country of action, not, uh, we don't, we can't, we can't patrol beliefs. We can patrol actions. And if your actions indicate that your beliefs are inconsistent with what we hold as principles in military leadership, then you shouldn't be in the military. The Military Times did a poll and one third of the service members participating said they had witnessed or heard uh, white supremacist actions or language, and more than half of minority service members had done so. What was your experience? Well, you know, I uh, had a pretty successful career in the military, and I re Very recall a, uh, a discussion with one of my federal ge fellow general officers about discrimination, and he um, quite honestly asked me, have you ever been discriminated against? And I said, well, of course, you know, uh, not when I'm in uniform and that stars on my shoulder, but if I go to the PX on Saturday, looking as I normally do, uh, having worked in the yard, 
and people think I'm might be involved in shoplifting. I've seen people chase me around the store. So th these are realities for people of color in our country. It doesn't define who I am. It doesn't define how I see our country, but it is a reality for, for me during my career and a reality for many minorities uh, across our country. In 1971, you were in the Air Force and there was an altercation at Travis Air Force Base, which escalated into riots. A mm -hmm. firefighter was killed, 10 were injured, hundreds were taken into custody. Talk about what impact that had on you and had on the Air Force. Well, it was a wake up call, I think, for our military leadership that there was a there was discontent in the force, if you will. And as I mentioned earlier, I, uh, uh, at the direction of the commander of OSI, went undercover to try to understand that phenomenon, uh, not at Travis, it was after Travis, but at other bases across our country. And I reported directly to the leadership of the Air Force what I had found on the ground. And what I found were people were feeling they were treated poorly and unfairly, and that they had no method to uh, redress that, uh, that poor behavior. And as a result, and I think to the credit of our military, our military put in place resources and, and processes to ensure that if people felt discriminated against, they had a way to make a complaint and have that complaint investigated and resolved. And that, I think, led to uh, improved race relations, improved morale, and all the other things that come with command paying attention uh, to issues in the force. Yet here we are 50 years later and the Military Times is reporting this, this poll of how many people experience white supremacist language or behavior. Doesn't surprise me. I mean, it's part and parcel of our society. Our military reflects our society and that people within our military might harbor some of those uh, discriminatory um, attitudes is not surprising. Again, I focus not on what they, what they say, but what they do. But do those attitudes disrupt the cohesion that's so critical to a successful military mission? Absolutely. If they are... Um, the way in which a person leads uh, and handles others uh, that they're responsible for. And I, I would say that I've heard in my career, you know, racial epithets and all sorts of other things. It, it uh, didn't mean that I was, uh, that those epithets and other things, not necessarily directed at me, but at others, uh, meant that uh, we were less focused on getting our mission done. So, Gene, I think the, the challenge here under our Constitution is you're free to think anything you, you want to think. That's what the First Amendment uh, gives you. What you're not free to do in, any, in the military is to treat people unfairly or uh, to treat people in ways that are inconsistent with our Constitution and our military uh, rules of good order and discipline. And when you do that, uh, you, you should be relieved from the military. What about veterans? Um, clearly both active duty and people have retired from the military are being targeted for recruitment by some 
of the extremist mm-hmm. groups. Mm-hmm. If a military veteran is caught up in this, and some have been, and some have been charged, what action should be taken against them? If they any? should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law for their illegal actions. Whether they're veterans or not veterans, if they conduct or involved, if they're involved in criminal activity, which January 6th was, uh, a criminal attack on our Congress uh, and our Capitol, then they should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Some have suggested to me that they should lose their military benefits. You know, I, I'm, I'm not an expert on military benefits or on military justice and with regard to how we treat uh, those who have retired from the ranks and the extent to which uh, the Uniform Code of Military Justice uh, applies to them. Uh, that's a policy decision uh, that's far beyond my pay grade. But uh, certainly we have legal and criminal remedies to address those issues. And that's where I would start. How worried should we be about extremism in the military and the efforts by extremist groups to recruit those with military trainings into their ranks? Well, we should be clear-eyed in, uh, in understanding that that's happening and do everything that we can to prevent that uh, from happening. Uh, and I, for so one, what do believe- we do? How do we prevent that from happening? Through training, through investigation. Uh, you know, the military investigative organizations will be looking for uh, issues of recruiting or improper recruiting, I, I would suspect uh, going forward. The FBI will be looking uh, for those kinds of things and then training uh, so that people understand uh, kind of what uh, these groups are attempting to do and, and who they're targeting and why they're targeting you and that uh, being a part of these organizations is inconsistent with your military responsibilities. Should screening at the time of recruitment be more rigorous? Yeah, I I absolutely believe that uh, a strong background investigation is important at time of recruitment. But I'm reminded, Gene, that um, every spy I've known passed a security clearance. Uh, Attitudes change over time. Uh, we, We need to be cognizant of how people act and when they act uh, inappropriate or act inconsistently with our standards of leadership and discipline, then we should take action. In several cases, there have been clues to the growing extremism of people within the ranks um, and their social media posts. Mm -hmm. What should the military be doing? What can the military be doing in terms of keeping an eye on that? Well, it's free speech. And so I, I, I doubt, I, I, I would hope that we're not monitoring uh, the free speech of our soldiers uh, outside of uh, their daily duties. Uh, that to me would be uh, inconsistent with the First Amendment. What if they're posting things that are extraordinarily um, offensive, potentially uh, threatening violence, and other members of the military, people who they serve with, have access to those posts. They see them. Are they and I think they, they, uh, they can be, and that would be an appropriate report to a commander, uh, that that behavior is uh, being manifested that is con- inconsistent with our values.
And are you convinced that commanders are taking that seriously? I think so. I mean, uh, I can't say completely that every commander will take that seriously, but, you know, in the military, we focus on good order and discipline and fair treatment because that's how we keep unit cohesion. And these types of issues can impact unit cohesion and good order and discipline. So any commander worth his or her salt will pay attention to this and take appropriate action either to discipline the person or to at least counsel the person that that behavior is inconsistent with their military responsibilities. So you were undersecretary at DHS in charge of intelligence and analysis. And as I'm sure you know, back in 2009, they tried to put out a warning that military um, and former military um, service members were being targeted um, by some of these extremist groups. Um, That was quashed. Do you think that politics has prevented the U.S. government from taking this issue more seriously? I think in that particular instance, it was politicized, unfortunately. And the, I remember I was uh, at Notre Dame uh, for another event and someone mentioned it uh, to me that, you know, how could DHS put out such a, uh, a report? And I said, it's true. It's that these groups do target former military people for recruitment. And so, you know, the, the report, while, um, it got a very negative political spin. Uh, The essence of the report was true. Uh, And I just think, you know, the the business of intelligence is to tell the truth, Uh, to tell the truth to power and to give people perspective. Uh, And in that case, uh, politics got in the way and uh, it was quashed. And did that put the U.S. government at a disadvantage? Did it fail I, to take this seriously? Did it fail to grapple with this more than a decade ago? Whenever politics gets in the way of quality intelligence, I think there's a danger. Uh, you know, I believe I've been 50 years in the national security intelligence business, and I believe you have to tell, uh, speak truth to power. Uh, that's what intelligence and law enforcement organizations are created to do. And when they are hamstrung by politics, I think it makes it doubly difficult for them to do the job. Now, that doesn't mean that politicians or others have to take action on what we present, but certainly they need to know what the facts are uh, as we see them on the ground. Do you think this is being taken seriously enough now? Absolutely. And I think going forward, um, it will be continue to be taken seriously until such time as the, the threat eases. And, uh, you know, the FBI has already reported the number of uh, domestic uh, extremist investigations has almost doubled in the last year. So I think this is a phenomenon that is, is there. It is um, challenging and we can't take our eye off the ball, uh, but I think we'll get it resolved just as we did in the 60s. And do you think that this attention to this is going to continue despite political pushback. Yes. Because despite what happened in 2009, because these people are a threat 
to our constitution and the actions that they take and the murders of innocent people that they've been involved in. So I think, again, we focus on behavior and action as opposed to what people say. And when that behavior kills people or threatens people uh, to take away their rights, I think it's appropriate for law enforcement to, uh, to intervene and uh, use the full extent of our criminal code to, to prosecute. How big a threat does it pose to have individuals who know tactics, who know strategy, who are familiar with, with weaponry? recruited into the ranks of some of these right-wing organizations? Well, I, I think, you know, those skills are, um, are Im- important to those organizations, which is why they recruit them. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, they, that uh, having those skills are going to create uh, a bigger threat. I think it's the, it's the threat of the movement uh, and the behaviors that they are professing to uh, want to execute that I worry about. Not so much the tactics uh, uh, that we, we understand the tactics that they use. We understand that they can use weapons and that sort of thing. And that's how they, you know, a- attacked uh, American entities. So I don't worry as much about who they recruit. I worry about the actions they plan to take. People, uh, politicians on the right say, you know, the the problem isn't just right wing extremism in the military. BLM is a threat, too. Do you see it as a threat in any way? Absolutely not. All Black Lives Matter uh, wants to say is that uh, black people in this country have been subjected to um, activities that are in that. Uh, our white brothers do not experience and that that needs to stop. And I don't equate Black Lives Matter with uh, white supremacy or the Proud Boys or that sort of thing in any stretch of the imagination. I think that's what what elseism, uh, I think that's the term. So, you know, you kind of blame somebody else for what you don't want to talk about. Uh, There is, there has been in our country uh, discriminatory behavior against people of color. Uh, it has been documented um, over and over and over again, and it's time for that behavior to, to end. And I, I thought it was really kind of interesting. Uh, Tim Scott, uh, the senator from South Carolina, said, you know, just like uh, I'm an independent, I've served both Republican and Democratic institutions. He's a conservative Republican, and he eloquently talked about how he had been treated, even as a conservative Republican, just because of what he looks like. Those are realities for people of color in this country, and I think what BLM is trying to to do is to make sure people understand that reality and do something about changing it. Now, there are anarchists on the left, and I think they should be treated the same way as anarchists on the right. Uh, with uh, appropriate investigation, criminal uh, sanctions, and incarceration where necessary. But let's not equate uh, Antifa with white supremacy. Uh, Antifa has not been involved, as far as I can tell from my reading, in the widespread murder of 
American citizens or conspiracy to murder American citizens as have uh, white extremist organizations in our country. So it's, uh, it is a problem on the right and the left, uh, but let's be clear that it's the actions of people who have killed innocent people that we're trying to, uh, to eliminate going forward. That was former Air Force Brigadier General Francis X. Taylor, now president and CEO of FX Taylor Associates. Taylor says he doesn't think extremism in the ranks is going to go away, but says he has confidence that the military will meet the challenge. He believes readiness will not be impaired. Wow, Gene. Uh, General Taylor and other military leaders really have their uh, work cut out for them in this this domestic extremism, it's not going to go away anytime soon. Unfortunately not. And that's it for this edition of Spy Talk. I'm Jean Meserve. And I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.